don't mistake activity for progress. Right. Right. So when you when you describe that organization that is a mile wide but an inch deep, that just screams to me, yeah, they could do lots of activity, but they'd suffer to get things done. Welcome to Catalyst, the Launch by NTT Data Podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Remember to, of course, get out there and subscribe wherever you got ears. It's, it's on every platform. We know these things already. Catalyst is an ongoing discussion for digital leaders dissatisfied with the status quo and yet very optimistic about what's possible through smart technology and really great people. Today, we've got a great guest who is he has an acute understanding of why do these digital leaders, why are they so dissatisfied? Where on the enterprise level, you know, the go-to-market schemes, emotions, where do things break down? Why do they break down? And most importantly, how do we fix it? So I'm joined by Danny Preston. He is the chief methodologist of value stream management and project to product transformation for our team at Launch by NTT Data. He has many, many years of expertise in this particular topic. A very engaging gentleman, Mr. Danny Preston. Welcome to the studio. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be here. Yeah, now we're going to have some fun. And this is a fun topic. What I like about it is that it's like an ogre, which is like an onion. There's lots of layers to peel peel through. So let us let us dive right into it. So you know, you've got a lot, a lot of experience with agile methodologies. Agile itself now has been what, 22, 23 years in the making. It's been around the block for a while. And over time, things have changed. So what are you seeing in terms of the, the changing of agile, how it's seen? And what are the problems that you're seeing that agile is kind of being used for? Like what's 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 happening now with agile? Yeah, so um, so just maybe a little bit about about myself there, kind of some background. I've been in doing agile transformations since around 2007, right around in there. And um, prior to that, I would I was an industrial engineer. I worked a lot in uh, manufacturing, distribution, places like that, helping to improve flow through the organization. So when I found agile in the software world, it was like I was coming back home. There's some some very familiar. Uh, stuff there as far as lean process improvements. Through the years, I've had a chance to work at a variety of companies, uh, Digital.ai, who does the State of Agile survey. I had, had a chance to contribute to that for several years, as well as uh, Tastop, who uh, Mick Kirsten uh, is, was CEO of Tastop, who wrote the book Project to Product. So I've been on the front lines of a lot of these big changes coming in over the past 20 plus years. And the interesting thing is that the, the goals that people set out to achieve in 2010 are the same goals that they're trying to achieve uh, today. As a matter of fact, one of the challenges on the State of Agile survey that, that we ran annually was that oftentimes things didn't change on that survey. There wasn't a, you know, a new story to tell year over year. It was like, hey, we're still trying to get these goals. These are still the blockers to those goals. So yeah, as, as a whole, the goals have been the same, I think, since the early days, trying to improve flow through the organization, speed to market, basically trying to keep employees happy, have, a, have an environment that inspires creativity and is a, is a solid culture that can kind of unlock people's intrinsic motivation. All those things have been desires for a number of years. The way that we've gone about achieving them has changed over time. And I think that's the part that's begun to morph, maybe the more interesting story there. So, you know, rewinding all the way back to 2001, um, you know, we've got team level agile, you know, let's do scrum. There's a single product owner with a team that can deliver you know, working tested software, independent, you know, a small group of seven to 10 people. 
over the years, uh, they they realized, hey, you know, we're able to produce good software quickly, but we can't get it into production. And so shortly after you see the, the Agile Manifesto 2001, around 2009, you see DevOps emerge where, you know, we need tighter collaboration between development and operations. We've got to really get um, faster. And, and the key bottleneck then was operations. As that began to, to see benefits, you see a focus on scaling emerge. So a lot of scaling frameworks came up through that time. Scaled Agile Framework, the most popular of those introduced in 2011. But there's, there's others, uh, Nexus, um, Scrum at Scale, uh, Less, et cetera. So a lot of those scaling methodologies. And the, what they realized is, you know, yes, we can produce working tested software quickly when it's a single team with no dependencies and we have operations involved, but at bigger companies that were adopting agile methodology at that time, they, they generally didn't have a single team that could produce that software. So they realized we've got to figure out some ways to scale. As that began to, um, to take shape, you see the conversation emerge even further. So instead of just many development teams and operations, now we have DevSecOps uh, as mm-hmm. a term pop up in like 2015, you start hearing that term. And you, you start to realize, well, this is a bigger organizational collaboration. We've got a lot of different people that are part of this value stream. And so an old, old uh, industrial engineering concept, value stream management, I've mean, been using that in auto manufacturing since the 40s. Um, they began to say, well, you know, software is kind of like that. We're not manufacturing hard stuff. We're manufacturing code, but it still flows through a value stream. And there's a path from concept to productive use. So value stream management really came on the scene. Uh, uh, you start hearing mentions of it in 2013, but much more as you roll past 2015, 2017. Um, and it becomes a key focus. A lot of organizations looking at that. Gartner and Forrester picked up that on their wave and, and magic quadrant. You start seeing value stream management tools emerge. And as you look at value stream management, it's really telling you how stuff's flowing in your org, where the bottlenecks might be, what's our what are, what are the various flow metrics, you know, our flow velocity, efficiency, et cetera. People said, okay, well, now we need to address these systemic issues. And that's where business agility, project to product, those kind of disciplines say, let's actually look beyond just development, you know, entire concept to cash. How do we organize to in- inspire flow to allow flow? So that's, that's the, again, same kind of problem we're solving for way back in 2001. We want to be faster. We want to be able to pivot to the highest value things. But now we're we're exploring even bigger parts of the organization more comprehensively to get there. Um, so a lot of good stuff happening in that. And then I I think real recently, kind of very very beginnings, is we're starting to see AI be able to inform not only more insights on where my bottlenecks in my organization are, but but even better where my opportunities are to get the higher value stuff to market of my, of all the things in my backlog. What has the greatest potential to generate value to my customers? And so that'll be a really cool thing to watch grow over time. And, and hopefully, again, all these are they're solving for the same problems, right? I want speed to value. I want to increase value for customers. I want to do it in a way that uh, unlocks the intrinsic motivation of my employees. And we're just having different different tools in the toolkit to solve that same problem. Yeah, and I think it's a great history you ran through there, Danny. And and of course, ending, if you will, that with with the the advent of AI, what it can do. And I love I love that you. The part of AI you focused on was, hey, it could help you go figure out the most valuable things to go do. So it's not just about, hey, use AI to, or use automations and AI to do the low value things. Like, no, no, no. AI can now help us go detect the high value things and and then figure out ways that uh, to value stream to them, right? Uh, so you get you get more of the good stuff, right? Which is, which is really interesting. And 
I think the history you gave too was it, it's like, hey, it started it started at a maybe whatever a five thousand foot level. Then I was like, ooh, the bottlenecks actually might need to be seen at twenty thousand feet. Like, ooh, the bottlenecks might be even a little bit a smidgen higher actually at fifty thousand feet because the bottlenecks could actually happen in different parts of the organization and maybe not just maybe not just in IT. So if you have a team that is, you know, they're truly doing agile well, they're doing DevOps, like specifically, why why isn't that enough? Yeah, well, I think it's a great a great question and. Again, there's a lot of orgs that are making significant investments, and in, you know how can we how can we be more agile in our software delivery? How can we uh, automate various parts of our delivery pipeline to to get code to production faster? Um, but but I'm starting to see where we, we've been working at that for a number of years, and so it's not really necessarily the primary bottleneck anymore. Hmm. It might be the one thing that you're measuring, so it's the only thing you can see. But there, the the real bottleneck might be upstream or downstream of that. And I, I love um, uh, Gene Kim in Phoenix Project. You know, he, he writes that if you're improving something that's not the bottleneck, your, your improvement's an illusion. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like, wow, if, I, if I'm trying to you know, do something simple, get a cup of coffee at my local coffee shop, and um, I want to make that process faster, so I you know, dig in, and I'm going to make the cash register experience faster and faster and faster, so it goes from you know, a minute counting cash to now you can just tap your card and 15 seconds later, I'm done with my transaction. I'm, I'm only looking at part of that value stream. And, and if the barista, which is generally the bottleneck at my local coffee shop, um, <laughs> if, they're, if they're still you know, not getting improvements in their area, we're not even looking at that area, it might actually mean that I'm ringing up people at a rate much, much faster than I used to, and I'm making my issue on the barista even worse. And mm-hmm. so while improving one part of the value stream without a view to the whole, I might actually slow myself down. And so that's where I think Agile and DevOps is a great place to start, you know, software development, software manufacturing, and software delivery in, in the form of DevOps. Great place to start. But I've seen some things, like here's, a, here's an example, Clint, where I've, I was working with a company and they were able to produce working tested software toggled off in production in two to four weeks. You know, a sprint mm-hmm. or two, they can get something cool into production. But they had to wait on the marketing department to do cool, you know, all the materials and a campaign and all that kind of stuff before they were allowed to toggle it on. So you'd have working tested code that could be deployed very, you know, decently rapidly every yeah. every couple of weeks, but it would wait three months plus toggled off in production before it could ever see productive use because the marketing department needed to kind of weigh in on their stuff. So, so as a whole, nothing wrong with Agile DevOps. I love it. But you also need to look upstream and downstream of that to see, am I really improving the thing that matters the most? Danny, that's a great example. I love it. I love the simplification. I love the the barista potentially as the bottleneck. We love our baristas, and yet, hey, if they're getting more and more orders and they just can't facilitate them all, well, then you get a different type of log jam. So, and, and like right. you said, it could be worse. In that world, it could end up in more errors and more frustration and more burnout, and then your whole system actually suffers. Meanwhile, you actually optimize the crap out of one part. But you really suffered, but the system suffered because you weren't listing it, looking at it holistically. Um, and then you gave the, the great example of the marketing team that just wasn't ready to go to go to go to market when code is flowing out in a really efficient way. So these things feel like common sense discussions, but what's the big obstacle? Why are they so hard to implement and improve at an organizational level? Yeah, you know, that's a great, that's a great question. I I think in most organizations that I work with, there's kind of just a gravity toward the status quo. And mm. 
and in general, just a, a resistance to change. And I see a lot of organizations, um, they change their vernacular. You know, they'll start using new terms, you know, project to product or, um, you know, different agile terms. You know, we're now doing squads and tribes and guilds or, or whatever it might be, but they don't change the underlying things that matter most. So in that example, um, you would need a tighter coupling between your development org and your marketing org. Um, you know, let's let's actually, you know, plan stuff together and make sure that we're both prepared to deliver it. Maybe couple tighter is through the through the development cycle. So the marketing group's looking at demos or able to to kind of anticipate code being released. But it's just like, wow, you know, we've always done it this way. Why do we really need to change? And so um there seems to be at the worker, you know, the people closest to the work, they know what these issues are. They they're struggling with it. But it's just hard to to convince, you know, more strategic leaders in the organization of how significant the issues are, how how great the benefits could be if you could change in, in such a way that they um, they actually make that change. Yeah, make, that makes sense. So but then, you know, systemically, what are some examples or, or the types of issues that you you do see quite a bit of? Or is, are there patterns that emerge? Are there ones that like, oh yeah, I could call out a couple that I these happen kind of all the time. What do you see as systemic issues? Yeah, so almost universally, and that, you know, had the chance to work with companies around the world. So not just lo- you know localized to our Western culture, but almost universally, I see companies that are organizing for the goal of high utilization, not necessarily high value delivery. And, and so the natural way that that surfaces is through loads and loads of work in process. Hmm. Um, so a lot of times organizations are spread a mile wide and inch deep. They've got many, many things in process so that at any point in time, if there's a specialized uh, capability that becomes available, they start work on the next new thing and everybody's busy all the time. But when you look at what they're actually delivering into productive use, it's a, it's almost a trickle. So, mm. you know, we're having to, you know, run uphill on a on an icy slope. You know, we're running very, very fast to hardly get any progress towards the goal. Um, and I think organizations know that, um, you know, a, there's a general sense of like, yeah, that's us, but, but it's hard to get traction to actually change. And so one of the things that I've seen that has been extremely helpful just the past two, three years, there's a new category of tools that's emerged called value stream management tools. And they'll, they're, they're approximating what I used to be able to do when I was an industrial engineer, right? You know, back in those days, I'd come into a manufacturing plant. You can kind of pictured in your head, you know, there's all kinds of unassembled things coming in, in the front of the manufacturing plant, you know, screws, whatever, uh, it takes to, to develop the thing you're developing. Those get pieced together bit by bit on an assembly line. And eventually they exit, you know, in a box onto a tractor trailer outside of that. When I used to walk into those and, and, you know, Hey, we've got to improve flow. We've got to improve efficiency. I could kind of walk around and see where stuff was piling up. Um, it, it, it didn't take a lot of intuition to understand where the issues were. I could kind of right. be there for a day or two and figure it out. Software world, that's always been a challenge until recently. We're starting to begin to get some of those same views as we sit on top of the agile lifecycle management tools, the DevOps tools, and we're able to begin to see the whole story of what it took to develop that code. And, and you know, if we start to, to pull in similar, the, the marketing tools, um, Asana, whatever it might be, now we can start to see an end-to-end picture of where work is flowing, where it's living, and where it might be piling up. And I've seen, kind of seen, 
progress for the first time in, in a long time where now when we show, hey, you've got too much whip and you're also impacting your ability to deliver, just having that visual has finally started to, to uncork some of these things and make progress where there's just been systemic issues for, for decades, really. Um, so, so a lot of cool stuff coming in market now. That reminds me. So uh, Nate Spilson, uh, who is the, the VP of engineering at, at launch by NTT Data, he gave a great talk at, at our Nexus event, which is our flagship event where we hosted in late April this year, 2023. And one of his kind of big bullets was don't mistake activity for progress. Right. right. So when you, when you describe that organization that is a mile wide, but an inch deep, that just screams to me, yeah, they've got, they could do lots of activity, but they suffer to get things done. Things yep. do not get across the finish line and you, you might get 90% of the way there, or you might get done eventually, but you didn't do it holistically and you didn't do it with the, the effectiveness that you thought you, that, that we of course all want to when we're mapping it out in some PowerPoint or some you know, just to some, even a napkin sketch of what, what are we, what are we going to go try and do? So that, that definitely rings home, uh, rings home for me there, Danny. The pieces that I think are really interesting, you know, I run a marketing org. I ran UX for, for a, a, a bit in my life as well. And I feel like the individual functions, they can get really good at their, their stack. You know, obviously there's a whole stack of MarTech stack where you could have your Slack talking to Asana that maybe hooks up to your, if it's Pardot into SFDC world, and you could create all these beautiful automations and your own workflows. But again, if you're not taking that next macro jump up to say, cool, now how does that tie to IT and how their, and their deploy, deployment cadence, you're, again, it's just, it, you're just shifting bottlenecks is what, is what you end up doing, right? So when we look at this from a more macro perspective, how far does it go out organizationally? Because it's clearly more than just IT. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think just kind of riffing off the first part of that, if you, so often we, you know, you can't help but look at the world through your own perspective, right? My own department, my own team, uh, my function in the organization. And, and we try to make our part of it very, very efficient. I think a, a, maybe a more powerful way to look at that is from the unit of values perspective. Like what's, What's life like for the story? What's life like for the epic or the feature that we're delivering into production? And what you'll often see, and you know, when I'm looking at it from my perspective, I'm a piece of the value stream. I'm busy all the time. I'm doing good stuff. I'm, I'm out there hammering away and I'm making my stuff very efficient where there's problems. It's not on my team. Like generally you'll see organizations that have been doing Scrum or Kanban for a handful of months. They'll get to that place where their biggest problems are outside of themselves. If we start to look at it from the vantage point of that story, you know, what is this unit of value and how's it getting to the customer? You start to see a lot of gaps. Um, it's very common in organizations to have a very low efficiency. If you, if you compare the value add time, like the time someone's actively working on that story or that feature compared to the time the, the story's waiting for a dependent team to pick up that work or, or something, you'll see things like 20% flow efficiency is very common. Uh, maybe as good as 40% flow efficiency in some other orgs. So there's a lot of opportunity to improve the flow of value of that thing. Now in manufacturing, we would never measure a workstation's efficiency, right? We're mm. measuring the efficiency of manufacturing the product. We're, we're generally looking at it from that view. What, how, are we, how are we doing at building my product? But in software, you know, we, we, I think it's easy just to stay a little bit more siloed because it's harder to get that view. So again, that's where some of those things would go. So how how yeah. far do you go? Well, I, I tell you, it's 
it's an organizational transformation. So you start somewhere, but you eventually go everywhere. One of the first things that you'll see organizations bump into uh, is, is you're beginning to improve your ability to deliver software. Funding models and things like that become your primary blocker so, so that you're, you know, if you're funding projects or funding little discrete pieces of scope, I see it oftentimes taking 40% of that scope's life cycle just getting funding approved for it. Mm. So from an end to end, you know, taking it from that perspective, there's a lot of improvements uh, to be made there. Changing PMOs to value management offices, and and I think there's still value in that in that oversight function, but we're providing oversight to the delivery of value instead of just the execution of scope. Basically, what you'll find is that the whole it requires an organizational shift. You can't do that all on day one, right? It's a gradual progression, and to me, the way I like to do that is getting as much visibility as I can into the overall uh, delivery chain, whether that's automated through some of these value stream management tools or manually collected through interviews, surveys, uh, other other means of collecting data, pulling that picture together, solving for the primary bottleneck, seeing what it does to your flow, find the next bottleneck and do that and solve for that one. So you don't have to change everything at once, change the things that you need to to make your flow better at that point in time. A little bit more pragmatic helps you out. And then that also helps out with transformation fatigue. How many different transformations are going on at any org? There's usually an agile transformation, yeah, a project yes. product transformation, you know, any kind of DevOps transformation. I've I found a lot more success in solving problems rather than doing huge, uh, you know, let's impact everything transformations. Let's go get some data, quantitative, qualitative, however we can get it. Let's identify a problem. Let's get the right people around to brainstorm solutions. Let's run some experiments, collect more data. Did we solve it? What's the next problem? Do we need to keep working on this one? And that tends to create a pull for these changes. If you involve people in, we can identify, yes, this is a problem. We all want to solve it. How can we do that? People begin pulling the change, and it's not, it's not pushed on them. And therefore, it's generally sustained longer and less transformation fatigue to get it put in there as well. So what's coming up for me is... Who at the enterprise, because again, your your conversations are squarely in enterprise conversations. And and if it's not a quite an enterprise yet, it's a growth company on a trajectory to, to be to be enterprise level, if you will. Um, so at that kind of scale. Who is owning this though? Because you have all these fiefdoms we're talking about, right? You might have a chief product officer and a CIO looking after the whole app, agile dev, you know, DevSecOps, and maybe a chief technology officer, and you get you see so sweet. Um, is this does this start to create new avenues for like a, what a chief operating officer ought to be doing? Or are you seeing it from, from your conversations? Are there other leaders gravitating towards this saying, ooh, this is important. I've got to get around this and take ownership of this. So again, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic and I'm a big fan of start somewhere and go everywhere, right? So there's a, I don't think at most companies, there's a there's somebody who's who already has this view and they're trying to to get it. Generally, this is a a, a view that's emerging in the market. Each company's figuring out their own way to go about doing it. If I go back to my manufacturing example, if all I can see is part of that process, let me make that as efficient as possible and try to detect upstream and downstream where problems might be. Um, and you know, you you may have data, you may not have data, but you can go get data. You can walk up and downstream, talk to people, do that, and so. What I'll often see, Clinton, is that generally someone like a chief digital officer, chief information officer is feeling pressure to improve, but mm -hmm. also knows 
they've made a lot of improvements. They've made things better, and they're not the primary bottleneck anymore. And so they're starting to try to build a case for improving things upstream or downstream of their particular role. And so that's basically a conversation that unfolds. Let's let's start to look at flow across. Let's let's get data where we can, and begin to have those conversations with our partners in the in the organization. Now, ultimately, I think the person best suited to own this kind of uh, flow, this kind of discussion, is the person who owns the P&L for that particular line of business. Or if you don't have lines of business, it's just one company, that, that company. So generally, ideally, someone like a general manager or maybe CFO or CEO, someone mm-hmm. like that, that, that's on the hook for delivering value, they're in the best place to say, hey, you know, I, I can help own the investment. I know what my my envelope is for that, you know, how much I've got to, to make investments in this. And I want to get the most value out of it that I can. So now let me let me actually go about doing that. So, you know, similar to our coffee shop example, the best yeah. person to improve flow there is the owner of the coffee shop, right? Like they're they're ultimately accountable for that. And and I think we'll see in the years to come that that mindset begins to permeate those roles more and more. I'm starting to see that shift in industry where more CFOs more CEOs are thinking about the flow of value, thinking less about the disparate parts. And so I, I think that'll be a, a capability that we'll see our leaders grow into in the years to come. I uh, love it. And you mentioned earlier too, the phrase of like transformation fatigue, right? And I think if that's, it's people, you hear that, you feel it, it's a, you, you know, and you, you know, and you feel it, you know, and you see it, like it's just, it could depress the body real quickly, right? It's like you're back inside, something huge, somebody's coming in with a new charter. We're going to do it differently. The promise for all the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there is legitimate fatigue at the enterprise level because especially, you know, agile methodologies. Now we're seeing companies that they're on their third or their fourth agile transformation and they're starting another product transformation. They're starting another large scale effort that way. And you got someone who might might have been with the organization, you know, 10 years, 12 years. It's almost like getting another, if it's a football analogy or metaphor, getting a new offensive coordinator. We're going to run a new playbook. It'll be better this time. I promise you. Yeah. Okay. That didn't work. Two years later, fire somebody, bring in a new offensive coordinator. We're going to run a new playbook. I promise it'll be better. And the net results are, in, in, the, in the metaphor, they're not winning Super Bowls and, uh, and and maybe they're a middling team and there's lots of frustrations. They lose, they lose their best people. So how... If you got the company on the verge of doing the fifth transformation, if we're saying they did their, th- their third or fourth, what are you saying to them? How are they going to avoid that fifth transformation and avoid that the fatigue we're talking about and, and instead do some things differently? But why, why is that fatigue happening so often? Yeah. So uh, maybe rewinding a little bit, I'm going to say something somewhat controversial, but I, I think just having watched this for decades, I think somewhere around 2015, give or take a couple years, I feel like Agile lost its way. And it became much more about uh, implementing a process than it was about solving problems. You know, I I think in the early days, the infancy Mm -hmm. of Agile, it was like, let's solve problems. Here's some patterns we've seen that are successful. What ideas do you have? How would you morph those and apply those in your context? And somewhere... To me, I noticed it around 2015. It became much more uh, about how much do I adhere to pick your favorite methodology. The maturity assessments emerged that were all about measuring your adherence to a methodology. And people people kind of lost sight of the problems they were trying to solve 
and just assume by implementing a methodology, you know, that's that's got to help somehow, right? I think that's what created a lot of the transformation fatigue associated with Agile. That's why people are on their second or third or fourth transformation um, because they're going through a, a different different methodologies. You know, we started out with Spotify. Now we're going to try Safe and you know, I've heard good things about Scrum at scale. Let's do this one. You know, we'll, we'll do that one for a third try. I think there's a temptation for consulting organizations to just go along with that. It's it's way easier to to train a a staff member to you know get certified in a particular methodology and just go follow a playbook and implement that. It's way easier to just mindlessly implement methodology than it is to solve business problems. So when you go about doing that, pick any methodology. You know, if we, if we were to announce, you know, to all of Launch Group tomorrow, hey, hey guys, guess what? We're we're now going to do, you know, whatever X scale. Um, and you know, we got the X scale consultants that'll be here next week, and they'll tell you about your new role. I, I think even if it's a great thing, everybody's going to roll their eyes and be like, "Why are you forcing this down my throat?" But instead, like what what we do is we say, "Hey, you know, we want to improve X, Y, or Z." Let's get data around that. Let's pragmatically make some of those improvements. Let's get the right people around to brainstorm. And then we, we run experiments. Did the, the new process we try actually make an improvement or did it not? Um, how much of an improvement? And then we can demonstrate that over time. And it builds momentum because uh, people see, you know, we're not just mindlessly implementing a heavy-duty framework. We're actually solving problems. Employees can see their lives getting better. Things are flowing. I have less uh, obstructions. And that's, that's the opposite of transformation fatigue, right? That creates a pull for transformation and change. Um, so I think, I think around 2015 and still to this day, to a larger degree than I'd like, a lot of these transformations are about process adoption. They're not mm -hmm. about problem solving. If we can change that conversation, get clear on the problems we're trying to solve, get data on those problems, how systemic are they, get the right people group, group people around to, um, to brainstorm solutions, and then I like to to treat the improvements like experiments. Um, you know, let's see if it's going to work. That that leaves the door open for it not to be the final change ever. We can we can do small improvements, see how they do, and then pivot on that. It's a lot less transformation fatigue and a lot more sustainable as well. It feels to me similar to some of the things where education has taken some some hits in the last let's say 20, 30 years, where things have become so teach to the test. Yeah. We've got these standardized tests. They rule all. We've got to teach these tests. Uh, meanwhile, potentially the better thing to do is to, to teach and facilitate critical thinking so right. that folks can be independent thinkers, really understand problem solving, whether that's in IT or just generally in education. But instead, we've really, really focused on we've got to get X amount of people above some arbitrary level so that a funding mechanism comes through. And it, it, it's perverse. It's not, yeah. it's not the right way in my opinion, to give people the critical skills, young people the critical skills to really, really uh, challenge themselves and, and, and adapt and then and grow in a certain way versus memorizing to a test. So everything you're talking about starting in 2015 almost feels that way. Like, hey, if you could prove you do these things didactically the way we say we do them, then by golly, you're certified this way, this way, and this way, and therefore you're an expert versus the actual application of, of the the mentality to go solve business problems and why and why in the first place it was a good it was a good idea back in 2001 because it was way more efficient so it, it'd be really cool to invert that and i do think the vsm and, and uh, project to product mindset gets kind of back to foundationally i think what the purpose was which which is pretty cool so it's a it's a nice comeback story in that way right so this all seems pretty logical 
yet. Uh, organizations can be very hesitant to to approach it. So, so kind of what gives? Yeah. So I think you know what you're talking about. Even with uh, education, teaching someone how to think is a lot harder than teaching right. them what the answer is that they need to produce on a test. Teaching someone how to think like that's going to require a pretty broad. Uh, background, you know, you've you've seen some situations similar. You've seen what works, what doesn't work. You've got some experience, and that experience is really gained over years. And so, it's not near as quick to manufacture billable entities in the form of consultants to come do the thing. Right? It's it's like these things have to be minted over time. There, you don't just go to four days of training and boom, now you're you're decreed certified and off you right. go start billing. So, so I think a. a a lot of the consulting groups out there are keeping the status quo because it's very profitable and you can ramp very quickly. Um, as a result, I think a lot of marketing efforts are to that end, you know, implement, fill in your blank methodology and get these wins. And so the methodology becomes the focus and then the customers are asking for the methodology. And so, so it actually takes some effort to not just say yes to what they're asking for, you know, to, to redirect them and say, Hey, you know, we can implement the methodology, pick anyone you like, but we could actually solve your business problems with that methodology or pieces of it. Um, would you consider that? So it's, it's a little easier just to say yes to the customer's request to do, you know, something mechanical that can be delivered with a high profit margin, um, than it is to actually redirect and say, Hey, let me, let me do something that's even more valuable for you. It'll produce more sustained change. So, I, as a whole, I, I think as, as more and more organizations are on their third or fourth agile transformation, they're going to run out of methodologies at some point anyway, and just get pragmatic and start solving problems, which, you know, maybe that's the way that this is ushered in to the new era. But I also think people are starting to recognize that, you know, maybe, maybe they recognize it are now starting to be more vocal, but we're seeing this shift over from methodology implementation to value delivery. And let's actually get on the hook for something much more valuable to the organization than just process adherence um, or adoption. So I think it'll happen, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a whole economy around this. I think $60 billion a year poured into agile transformations around the globe. So, so there's a definitely a gravity to don't mess up my profit. This causes that. Yeah. And I think when, when we have bigger, bigger stroke ideas like this, that, that we're discussing, um, it, it can be difficult for people could can say, "Ooh, I really like what's being discussed," and the spidey sense might be tingling, being like, "Ooh, that's me." They're describing my organization or problems I'm having, and yet there's always that desire to desire to understand. Okay, well, but but yeah, but I don't. What can I do? Like, what's an actual formidable first thing that isn't the entire elephant, but gets the potential ball rolling or brings people together to critically think about this problem in a new way. So if someone's kind of in that that excited state, what would you recommend they do to actually start? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing is you're you're identifying some kind of a problem that you see in your world, something that needs to change, right? And, and we've all got those there within its arm's reach. If I could, if I, if I were the leader, I'd change this or that, right? Um, so you begin to identify that. And then you need to collect collect information on that, whether that is just data that you're collecting manually or you're having conversations, interviews, or you can automatically collect data on, you know, this process, here's the current baseline, here's where the issues are, let me get transparency around that. And then whatever it is you want to improve, just tie it to your organizational goals. You know, if your organization is, you know, whatever, we want to improve profitability or decrease uh, cost per feature, uh, you know, run more efficient efficiently, show how 
Whatever it is you want to improve is going to tie into their goals. And then just, you know, try to get permission to make one small improvement. And Clinton, I think that's where we we see that start somewhere and go everywhere. Find a small mm-hmm. win, uh, you know, even if it's just rolling a pebble down the hill of, you know, all the things that need to change. Find that small win that's within your area of control and begin to build momentum. Put your feelers out for other issues that might be a bigger issue. And, um, and then take that same win that you've had and build on it, uh, continue to build momentum. And I think that's how you end up going through and end to end on your organization in time. Yeah, I think the the ability to continue continue to paint a bold vision for what can happen and be pragmatic about, okay, there's a step we can take to to get that momentum going. I, I, we talk about, I, I say a lot, I say I talk about quite a bit on this podcast that folks always say they want to act like a startup. They want to act like a startup. And it's like, cool, there's certain things that are really great about a startup that, that we all envy and, and want to do velocity-wise and then to affect meaningful change within an enterprise. There's you've got you've got to build that momentum you have to get the the gravity in your favor and like you said the, the pebble rolling downhill is the great metaphor for that uh so so great advice the whole way through there Danny it's a, a nice I love the I love how the conversation evolved and it where it starts with the history and now I think mentally we're at this like drone level state where we're looking at this entire landscape and seeing it as as a a flowing ecosystem and I love that idea that, hey, you could have your your function, your fiefdom be as good as it's going to get, be extremely, extremely efficient. That's cool. And that it's to be celebrated. And, and if you do, if you're there or you're close to there, well, then I think that's the nudge for you to say, okay, it's somebody else's system that I don't innately control, if you will, right now, that I've got to go knock on the doors and get everybody together. Like, okay, we have... Pretty good siloed systems. That's a pretty mature state for the for the modern enterprise. Now, how do we string them together so they actually act as one system? That's where we could, that's where we can help folks strive through. So, Danny, it was really a pleasure to have you on Catalyst today. Danny, where can folks find you? Is LinkedIn best? Is Twitter best? What's what's your uh, what's your pleasure? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. Uh, Daniel Preston. It's P R E S T E N ten, like the number ten. If you type that in LinkedIn and you see someone with that last name, they're related to me somehow. I'm the I'm the Daniel Preston version of that list. Nice, nice. The real Danny Preston. All right. So <laughs> that is Danny Preston, the chief methodologist of Value Stream Management and Project to Product Transformation here with us at Launch by NTT Data. And we thank you very much for joining us today because in this studio, we believe in shipping software over slideware that fast will follow smooth and aiming to create digital experiences that move millions is a very worthy pursuit. Join us next time as the pursuit continues on Catalyst, the Launch by NTT Data podcast.